Good afternoon, everyone. And today we are going to be learning a sikha, a talk from the Rebbe about Tisha B'Av, the ninth of Av. Uh, you might notice that the theme is very similar to what we learned last week uh, about, in general, the month of Av, which is a month of mourning. Uh, but today we're going to focus specifically on the actual day of Tisha B'Av. Um, interesting customs that happen on that day um, and something that we can learn about it and we'll, we will walk away with a profound lesson about Tisha B'Av, in general the concept of exile and the imminent redemption. Um, I would like to start off, you know, last week uh, it wasn't really in connection with the parasha and this week it's not transparently connected with the parasha, uh, but since this is titled a parasha class, um, so I want to give you what you signed up for. I want to give you your money's worth. So uh, I will show you uh, the, the connection to the parsha before we begin. In general, the three weeks from the 17th of Tammuz, the fast of the 17th of Tammuz, all the way till the 9th of Av. Actually, come to think of it, already it's, it's probably three classes that haven't been really connected with the parsha. Actually, no, two weeks ago it was Pinchas. Um, be it as it may. Uh, the three weeks from the 17th of Tammuz until the 9th of Av, there is a custom that we read the Haftorah. For those three weeks, are, uh, there are sections. Two of them are from Jeremiah. One of them is from Isaiah, specifically speaking about the destruction, no matter what the parsha is and no matter what the special occasion is. In fact, this past Shabbos was Rosh Chodesh, beginning of the new month. Typically, if Shabbat is on Rosh Chodesh, we don't even read a Haftorah connected with the parsha. We read a Haftorah that's specifically meant for Rosh Chodesh. Because we read, we take out a second Torah and we read about Rosh Chodesh in that second Torah. So that Torah needs to be about Rosh Chodesh. But this past week, that was suspended. It was suspended uh, in deference to the Haftorah about the destruction of the temple. In other words, the three weeks leading up to the destruction, in the Haftorah, we read about destruction. It's interesting to note, however, that the Parshas that usually are read, almost always are read in the three weeks, are Pinchas, Matos, Masse, usually are together, which is what we read this past week, and this coming Shabbos is the parasha of Devarim. In all four of these parshas, the concept of entering the land of Israel, which is basically symbolic of redemption, it's symbolic of reaching the goal. You know, the Jewish people, they left Egypt, but they didn't reach the promised land until after 40 years of traveling through the desert. So, the exodus from Egypt wasn't really complete until they actually arrived um, in the Holy Land and built the Holy Temple. In fact, we find this alluded to very clearly in the Haggadah. We have that famous song of Dayenu, right? Day, Dayenu. We all love that song. And that song tells us if God would take us out of Egypt and wouldn't do this, it will be enough. Where does it end off? It says, not only did he do all of these miracles, you know, going through the desert, etc., but he even brought us to the land of Israel and built the Holy Temple. That's symbolic of the, how do you say, the destination. That's the goal for everyone. So in these four parshas, each one of them speaks about um, inheriting the land of Israel, arriving in Israel, conquering the land, and inheriting the land. In parshas Pinchas, we are told about the process through which the Jewish people are going to divide the land. They will divide it with a goyrol, with a lottery, uh, a very a very prophetic and miraculous type of lottery. And then we have the story of the daughters of Tzlovchad, who said, you know, they, they very much wanted to perpetuate their father's legacy in the land. 
and God said yes. The girls, since there are no uh, there are no boys to inherit and, and to perpetuate the legacy, they are going to be the ones to do so. You come to Parashas Matois, we learn there of uh, the two tribes that requested that they should receive their portion in the land of Israel on the eastern side of the Jordan River, and that became annexed as part of the uh, as part of the land of Israel. Uh, this became a very important part of the setting of, settling of the land of Israel. You come to the, the portion of Masse over there again. We have instructions with regard to the dividing of the land of Israel. Who should represent each tribe, and they should do it on their behalf. And uh, we end off with specifics about um, that the daughters of Tzlovchad should marry specifically within their own tribe in order that their portion of the land of Israel should not be switched to other tribes. Um, so that's in Parashas Masse. And then in Parashas Devarim, it's interesting. It's, we start the fifth book of the Torah. And this is a long speech that Moses gave towards the end of his life. And at the very beginning, the very beginning of Parashas Devarim, uh, Moshe recounts how God told the Jewish people as they were camped at Sinai that they should start to travel towards the land of Israel. And they said, come and inherit the land of Israel. So we start off this Parsha that we read on the Shabbos right before Tisha B'Av with the announcement that God is inviting us, inviting the Jewish people to come inherit the land of Israel, to come to our goal. There's a very fascinating thing because the past three weeks and culminating with Tisha B'Av, it's all about destruction. It's all about commemorating um, the destruction of the temple, the exile from the land of Israel. There are things that we abstain from doing in order to emphasize and to illustrate the mourning that we are experiencing um, as a result of the exile. So what is all of this to do about reaching our goal, reaching the land of Israel? And as we learned last week, and as we're going to learn this week, these are not contradictions. In fact, they go hand in hand and illustrate to us that the destruction of the temple, the temple and the exile of the Jewish people from the land of Israel was not merely a punishment. It's not about slapping us up for messing up, but in fact, it's there in order to bring us to greater places. We'll, we'll get to that as we, get, as we go along in the Sicha. So that's the connection to the parasha of the week. Um, so Tisha B'Av, why do, we, why do we fast on that day? What exactly happened on that day? Last week we learned um, several things happened on Tisha B'Av. And most important um, and what's most emblematic of the day of the fast day is the fact that the temple was destroyed. In fact, some of the, some of the disasters that happened on Tisha B'Av preceded the, the destruction of the temple. I mean, most commonly, I mean, the, the, the story with the spies when the Jewish people were in, the, were in the desert, and as a result of the spies coming back from the land of Israel and dissuading the Jewish people from, uh, from going to the land, and they wailed an entire night. God was very angry, and they all died in the desert throughout those next 39 years. There was no fast day that was implemented for that day. However, when the temple was destroyed, after the first temple was destroyed, they implemented this fast of Tisha B'Av. During the time of the second temple, there is a conversation in the Talmud whether the Jewish people fast on the ninth of Av. One opinion would say, yes, they did, because the first temple was destroyed. The other opinion says, but we have a temple, so there's no reason to fast. Once the second temple was destroyed, that, that fast came back and with, you know, with the same severity and the same um, with, with even more um, impact uh, than the first one. So the most important element of Tisha B'Av, the disaster that we most commemorate is the destruction of both temples. 
Um, when did the, what exactly happened and how did this go down? So let's read on page three. This is a quote from Josephus. Um, Josephus was a Jewish man, I believe was a Kohen, whom many Jews considered a turncoat, a traitor. He went to the Roman side. Um, history is a bit divided on his intentions, um, but the point of the but, but the fact of the matter is that he uh, he put together an interesting journal of what was going on of the destruction of the temple, and for the most part, or I think almost entirely, traditional Judaism accepts his stories as uh, historically accurate for the most part. Um, although there are some things that there's certainly discussion about. But anyway, here's a quote from Josephus. The Roman ministers and advisors of Titus told him, if you don't burn this building, you will never conquer this people. They are willing to die for it. So here, you know, Titus had, had breached the walls of Jerusalem. He was really squashing this Jewish rebellion. And his advisors told him he really has to burn down the temple. Titus revealed his opinion that he would not take revenge on the temple which is not a living thing, living being, for the sins of human beings, even if the Jews climb onto it to fight from it. Doing so would damage the Romans while leaving the edifice standing would allow it to shine as a jewel in their crown. Right? If, if he has that building, he can always show off their conquest. What does he gain by destroying it? He wants to kill the people. The people were rebelling against him, not the, or were, were, were rebelling against Rome, but not, um, not the building. So Titus really had no intention of, of burning down, burning, at least according to Josephus. The next day, the Romans gathered and set fire to the temple. They took logs and set them up, set them upon the golden gates of the temple and lit them on fire. The gold heated up, the wood and the doors burned, and they collapsed. The temple and the Holy of Holies became open to all. On the ninth day of the fifth month, the same day it was opened in the days of the Babylonians. When the Romans opened the gate to the temple and occupied it, a cry of joy erupted, and the fire surrounded the temple, slowly burning through it. A cry of joy erupted. Who was, who, who was joyful? Who was happy? You'll say the Romans, right? They're happy. Put on your seatbelt. You'll, you'll hear something interesting soon. The priests in the temple fought the Romans until they could no longer lift their arm in battle. When they realized that all was lost, they jumped and threw themselves into the fire that was raging in the temple. Many of the Jewish warriors hiding from the Romans perished in the holy fire along with the priests. They said life is not worth living without the temple. By the way, why is that? Why is life worth not, not worth living without the temple? I once heard a, a speech by Rabbi Steinsaltz. He said the following. He said, why are we fasting on Tisha B'Av? What's the whole to do? Hundreds of thousands of people died then. One second. And if they didn't die then, would they still be alive today? What, what, what are we mourning exactly? That they died on Tisha B'Av? So he said, no, that, that we're not mourning the destruction of human life that happened on Tisha B'Av, even though that itself is a terrible thing. What we're mourning is the destruction of the temple. And he explained. I like the way he explained it. He said, imagine someone goes to sleep, wakes up the next morning and realizes he is missing two legs, one arm, and his hand. He only has one arm left, but not the hand. doesn't have his fingers, right? And now what? How would he feel about such a day? That he, that he lost mobility, that he lost most of his function? Oh, and he's also mute. Can't speak anymore. I mean, it's, it's a horrible day. Most of Judaism is anchored in the temple. There are 613 mitzvot. 
guess what? Most of them are not relevant today. Most of them we can't do. Why? Because we do not have a functioning temple. So the Jewish people, the day before Tisha B'Av, had 613 mitzvahs to do. 613 pathways with which to connect to God. The next day, boom. Their, their whole Jewish functionality hung in the balance. In fact, one of the greatest um, accomplishments and achievements of the sages at the time was to basically rearrange Judaism, not to remake Judaism, but until then, all of Judaism was anchored around the temple, and all of a sudden, that anchor was gone. So they had to basically set up a system, not make up stuff, but they had to recalibrate the way Jews celebrated holidays. They had to recalibrate so many things because of the destruction of the temple. And so therefore, the Jews that were witnessing the destruction of the temple, many of them chose to die with the temple because life is not worth living without the temple. This is just to illustrate why the burning of the temple was such a traumatic event for all the Jewish people, not just for those that witnessed it, not just for the Jews of that generation, but it's a, it's a, it's a tragedy that, that has implications today. It shaped the way we serve God today. And that's why we're constantly yearning, as we learned last week, we're constantly yearning for the rebuilding of the temple. We don't want the temple because it's a beautiful building. We want the temple because only then we are capable of serving God with all 613 mitzvot. So now, what was the timeline of the destruction of the temple? Source 2, this is from the Talmud. On the 7th, the 7th day of Av, Gentiles entered the sanctuary and ate and desecrated it with fornication on the 7th and the 8th. You're talking about the holiest space. And here, they were just doing whatever they wanted there. Before nightfall on the 9th, so we're already on the ninth day of Av. The building is still there, but before nightfall, they set it on fire and it burned for a full 24 hours. As it is stated, woe unto us, for the day has declined, for the shadows of the evening are stretched out. So when did the temple start burning? Towards the end of the day on the ninth. And it was on almost the, the eve of the 10th. That's when it started to burn. This is the meaning of Rabbi Yochanan's statement. Had I lived in that generation, I would have established the fast on the 10th because most of the sanctuary was burned on that day. But the sages felt that marking the beginning of the tragedy was preferable. All right. So when is the fast of Tisha B'Av? On the ninth day of Av. How do we commemorate the destruction? So there's fasting. We don't eat. We don't drink. Starting from the night before or by, by sundown, the night of the, of the ninth, and that continues until um, nightfall on the, you know, the eve of the 10th. There's also another custom. Oh, in addition to not eating or drinking, we do not wear leather shoes. It's another sign of mourning. We do not bathe, we do not wash ourselves. We do not anoint ourselves with any type of creams and perfumes and things like that. Source three, something very interesting. It is customary not to sit on a bench during the night and day. Um, it, if anyone here experienced Shiva, one of, the, one, of the, one of the customs of mourning is to sit on a low stool or on the floor, not to sit on a high, like on a regular sized chair, like on a bench, until the afternoon. We sit only on the floor. In the afternoon, it is permitted. So here's an interesting thing. Of all of the, all, all of the uh, customs of mourning that we do on Tisha B'Av, 
including not eating, drinking, etc. All of them apply throughout the 25 or 26 hours of the fast, 25 hours pretty much. However, the prohibition from sitting on a high chair, or a high stool, a high bench only continues until midday of the ninth. All right. Here's another thing that we do on, um, on, on, the, on the afternoon of Tisha B'Av. Source four. The common custom is to recite the prayer of Nachim only during the Tisha B'Av afternoon service. Now, let me give you a little bit of background. In the, in the Amidah prayer, we have 19 blessings. One of the blessings is about the city of Jerusalem, the rebuilding of Jerusalem. On Tisha B'Av, specifically in the third prayer of the day, in other words, in the afternoon, as we're getting close to the end, you know, it's after midday, that's when we recite a prayer which is titled Nachem, which is, essentially means consolation, that God should console us. It's part of this blessing about Jerusalem. Um, and we only say it on Tisha B'Av. Now, um, it's a Tisha B'Av prayer. Speaks about the destruction in very vivid and graphic detail. However, the whole point of the prayer is, as its namesake is, Nachem, that God should console us. The prayer of consolation is specifically recited in the afternoon. Not in the evening of Tisha B'Av, not in the morning, specifically in the afternoon. Uh, let's read through the prayer in English here. It's not a very common prayer. It's only read once a year and only one in one prayer of that one day. Source 5, console, Lord our God, those who mourn for Zion, those who mourn for Jerusalem, and the city that is in mourning and in ruins, despised and desolate. Mourning because she is bereft of her children, ruined of her dwellings, despised in the loss of her glory, desolate without inhabitants. She sits with her head covered in shame, like a barren woman who never gave birth. Legions have devoured her, idolaters have possessed her. They threw your people Israel to the sword and wantonly murdered the pious ones of the Most High. Therefore Zion weeps bitterly, and Jerusalem raises her voice. Oh, my heart, my heart breaks for their slain. Oh, my innards, my innards ache for their slain. So this is a very graphic description of the destruction. But then he continues, For you, O Lord, consumed her with fire, and with fire you will rebuild her. As it is said, I will be to her, says the Lord, a surrounding wall of fire, and I will be for a glory within her midst. Blessed are you, Lord, who consoles Zion and rebuilds Jerusalem. When do we specifically say this prayer of Nachim of consolation? In the afternoon of Tisha B'Av. Now, based on what we just read from the Talmud, it seems that the afternoon of Tisha B'Av is, is when the, the fire started to consume the building. So that's when the real tragedy hit. So why, are, why is the afternoon of Tisha B'Av, so to speak, more lax than the previous uh, 15 hours, a little more, 18 hours? Why then do we sit on a regular chair? Why then do we recite the prayer of consolation if that's exactly when the building was burned? Uh, let's look at source six from the Arizal. He asked this question. On Tisha B'Av, on, on, on page six, source six. On Tisha B'Av, it is customary to recite verses of comfort during the afternoon prayer. And it is also customary to get up and sit normally on benches. But it would seem from the Babylonian Talmud 
that the temple was set aflame only in the evening of Tisha B'Av. It would seem appropriate to mourn in the afternoon more than in the morning. So what's going on? Okay, so let's let's go to um, to the Rebbe's uh, Sicha, which is from 1984, from the Shabbat after after Tisha B'Av. It is customary to recite the Nachim prayer during the afternoon services on Tisha B'Av. However, this raises a question. Why was the prayer designated for the afternoon service and not for the morning or prior evening? It seems counterintuitive. The burning of the temple began on the ninth of Av towards evening. The Talmud says before nightfall on the ninth, they set it on fire. The Talmud even tells us about a proposal to set the fast day on the 10th because most of the sanctuary was burned on that day. Why then do we recite the prayer of Nachim? Message of solace, specifically in the afternoon prayer. By the way, there were some pious people that would fast both days. They would fast on the 9th and also on the 10th. Don't try this at home, okay? It's not, it's not, for, it's not for you and not for me. But, you know, it's a very serious thing, the fact that the 10th day, um, the, the temple continued to burn. In fact, the prohibitions of the nine days, in other words, not eating meat or drinking wine, uh, doing laundry and things like that, continue until midday of the 10th of Av, specifically for this reason. Because really the burning of the temple continued on, to the, on the 10th day. Um, be it as it may, the question really is, I mean, fine. So the fast started, the fast was designated on the 9th, as the Talmud says, because the sages at the time decided that they should commemorate the beginning of the tragedy. But, this does not explain why specifically towards the end of the fast, which is when the building started to burn, that's when we get up on regular benches. And we say this prayer of consolation. Darizal gives a surprising and beautiful answer in Shara Kavonis. And we mentioned this actually last week, but we're going to go in more depth here. Darizal gives a surprising and beautiful answer in Shara Kavanot. When they saw the temple begin to burn, the people recited hymns and rejoiced. The people started dancing, dancing and singing, which actually might um, explain what Josephus said over here, that when, when it started to burn, a cry of joy erupted. It wasn't just the cry of joy of the Roman heathens that were burning the temple to the ground, but even it's a cry of joy of the Jewish people. Why is that? When did this occur? Not on the anniversary of the destruction, as it didn't happen on the 10th. As the, as the building burned, you know, people were crying and jumping in and killing themselves. But at the very moment the temple was set on fire, that's when, uh, I'm sorry, not on the anniversary of the destruction. In other words, it's not that the next year, that's when Jews started to think and realize and see what happened, and they found some type of positive element to the destruction of the temple. As the Jews were standing there in the heat of battle, in fact, just an interesting side note before we continue. Um, I heard recently an interesting uh, historical description, the difference between the destruction of the first temple and the destruction of the second temple. The destruction of the first temple, as we learned, the, 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 the walls of Jerusalem were breached on the 17th of Av, some say on the 9th of Av during the first temple times. In the first temple era, the Jewish people inside the city of Jerusalem, they were starving to death. When, when the Babylonians breached the walls, there was like this eerie silence. Everyone was starving. 
Babylonians weren't killing people. They actually, and, and Nebuchadnezzar, who was the, the Babylonian king who was basically in charge of this campaign, wasn't even there. He was somewhere else. So they sent a messenger to go to Nebuchadnezzar to ask him, what should we do with this? What should we do with the city, with the people, and with the building? So he sent the message back, destroy the building. It took a few weeks. It took about three weeks for the message to go there and for it to come back. And so all of a sudden it started to burn. In other words, the burning of the temple during the first temple era was not in the heat of battle. By the Roman conquest, the, the destruction of the second holy temple, the Jewish people were fighting terribly. It was, it, was, it was a fierce battle that was raging on the temple mount for three weeks. Literally, there was just constant battle. And so the, there's a very big difference when the temple is destroyed just <laughs> out of the blue, so to speak, after this eerie silence, or when it's destroyed in the, in the hubbub and, and the, fierce, you know, the fierceness of battle. And so here, you know, the Jewish people, they're, they're fighting. They can't fight anymore. And all of a sudden, they see the building go on fire. And they rejoiced. They rejoiced then at that moment in the heat of battle as they see the temple go aflame. That's when they rejoiced. It was during the worst moment of the tragedy, not during the nine days prior, nor during the three weeks prior, nor on the 10th of Tavis when the city was besieged and ultimately destroyed. But as they watched the temple burn, at that moment, the people recited hymns and rejoiced. The Arizal explains in Shara Kavanas that the issue can be understood based on a teaching in the Talmud. Again, we read this last week also in a different sikha, but it's good to always refresh. There is a hymn in Psalms which Asaf recited during the destruction. It says, Mizmer Asaf. And he says, Heathens have come into your temple, they've come into your sanctuary. So the, the Talmud asks, Why did he sing a hymn? Right? He should have, he should have, uh, he should have cried. Right? You should have uh, lamented. The Talmud explains that at the outset, the enemies wanted to kill the Jewish people. Right? As Josephus mentioned, that really, um, Titus, his, you know, he said, who, are the, who, the, who rebelled against the Romans? The people, not the building. So I'm not going to destroy the building. I'm going to destroy the people. So initially, at the outset, the enemies wanted to kill the Jewish people. The Jews thought they would never recover from the blow. They would be annihilated by the sword of the enemy. When they saw the flames of the temple on the afternoon of the ninth of Av, they rejoiced and sang a hymn. They found solace because if God would not have spent his fury on the sticks and stones, he would have done so on the people. As our sages said, he vented his fury and kindled the flame in Jerusalem. In other words, here we're, we're, we're going to get to actually the bottom of, of what the whole concept of the destruction of the temple really is and what exile is all about. In other words, the burning of the temple revealed how beloved the Jewish people are to God. Even in the lowest spiritual state where God is forced to destroy the temple, heaven forfend. And as we mentioned earlier, the ramifications of the destruction of the temple is not just that our, you know, the, the building is gone. Half of, most of Torah is gone. Most of Jewish observance is not relevant. It's not just a symbol of Judaism. This was the anchor of Judaism. This is what Judaism depended on. And here God is, so to speak, forced to destroy it because of our behavior. Even then, he did not threaten the existence of the Jewish people out of his great love for them. Therefore, even when the heavenly court rules that God should unleash his fury, 
The ruling is expressed on sticks and stones. The Jewish people themselves, as the Talmud says, my arrows will run out, but they will not run out. The existence of the people of Israel is eternal. This was revealed at the moment the fire was lit and the temple was set ablaze, because that was the moment we reached rock bottom. Until that moment, we couldn't possibly know what God would do when the situation deteriorated. But when we hit rock bottom and God was, so to speak, forced to set the temple on fire, that is when his essential love for the Jewish people was revealed. We realized that even in the worst possible situation, our existence is eternal because God loves us so. In other words, that famous statement, Am Yisrael Chai, the nation of Israel lives. When did the Jewish people know this with absolute certainty? Not at the height of their glory, not in the times of King Solomon, not when the temple stood in Jerusalem. They knew it specifically when the temple was being destroyed. Because the fact that the temple was being destroyed was indicative of how low we've reached. We are not deserving of having the temple anymore in our midst. We're not deserving of having the ability to observe all of the mitzvot in their fullness, in their wholesomeness. But even though that was being denied of us, our existence is, no, is, is without question. Our existence is guaranteed. Why? Because even when God needs to unleash his fury, it's always expressed on the buildings and never on the people. What I mean is that, yes, many people did die. It was a terrible tragedy. And there was, a, there was a, a, an astronomical loss of life. But there was always a remnant that would rebuild itself and would continue to be here. Uh, let, let's actually read the, the source for this idea that when God unleashes his fury, it's specifically on, uh, on, the, on the buildings and not on the people. God has vented, let's go to source seven. God has vented his fury, poured out his blazing wrath. He has kindled a fire in Zion. It is written, A hymn by Asaph, O God, heathens have entered your domain. This verse should have called it the lament of Asaph. Why does it say a hymn by Asaph? Why are we singing? Why are we not lamenting? By way of a parable, a king prepared a wedding canopy for his son, erecting it, enhancing it, and decorating it. His son got into bad behavior. Got in, he got in the wrong group, right? In the wrong, uh, the wrong group of bad company. So the king went over to the canopy and tore up the curtains and smashed the decorative stalks. The prince's tutor fashioned the flute of a stalk and began playing music. They said to him, the king overturned the son's wedding canopy and you play music? He replied, I sing because he overturned the wedding canopy and did not vent his anger on his son. So too they said to Asaph, God has destroyed the temple and you sit and sing. He said to them, I sing because God vented his fury on sticks and stones and did not vent his fury on Israel. As it is written, he has kindled a fire in Zion, which has consumed her foundations. Now, the, the source of this uh, interesting teaching is also very fascinating. I mean, it's an interesting twist on, on this, this verse in Tehillim, explaining why the destruction of the temple would, um, would uh, elicit um, a song instead of a lament. By the way, there's plenty of lamentation uh, with regard to the, to the destruction of the temple. But we're specifically focusing on this verse in Tehillim, which discusses the, the, the song and the prayer, the joy 
um, that erupted as a result of the destruction of the temple. So who was the one to teach this? It was a great sage, his name was Avimi. Avimi was the son of Rabbi Avo. So let's look at the source number eight. This is a quote from the Talmud. Uh, in fact, those pages, pages of the Talmud discuss the mitzvah of honoring your parents. Uh, to what extent must we go in order to honor our parents? So Rabbi Avo said, Avimi, my son, properly fulfilled the mitzvah of honoring his parents. Avimi had five sons who were rabbis during his father's lifetime. Yet when Rabbi Avohu, who was Avimi's father, came and called at the gate to enter, Avimi would run to open for him. And before he arrived there, he would say, yes, yes, so that his father would not think that he was being ignored. You know, it could take some time to get from where you are in the house to the gate to open up. And you, you, know how, you know how weird it is to stand in front of someone's door and, you know, you ring the doorbell and there's like a minute or two of silence. and You're not sure, should you stay, should you leave? So uh, Avimi, he, would, he himself would run and he was screaming, yes, yes, I'm coming, I'm coming, so that his father should see that, oh, someone paid attention and someone's coming to open up the door. One day, Rabbi Avo said to his son, give me water. He asked him for a glass of water. Before he brought it, Rabbi Avo dozed off. So Avimi ran to get some water. He brings it to his father, and his father's already sleeping. He fell asleep on his chair or wherever it was. Avimi bent over him and stood over him until he awoke. In other words, Avimi didn't say, oh, too bad. Here's the water, and that's it. Avimi wanted to serve his father the water the second he would wake up. So Avimi stood there, and he, uh, he was waiting for the moment that his father would, would, would wake up from his sleep, and he would give him the water. That means... That he, was, he, was, he, was, he was extending a great sacrifice in order to honor his father. I mean, there's a lot of things that Avimi could do during that time. Istaya Milsa. This aided him. In other words, this mitzvah that he did, he was so careful to honor his father. This gave him an inspiration. And while he was standing over him, I guess his mind was thinking about Torah thoughts, he succeeded in interpreting the psalm to him by Asaf. In other words, this beautiful explanation about the song that Asaf sang when he saw the temple burning, this came to Avimi as he was in the middle of doing a mitzvah, which is a very fascinating concept. The lesson that it teaches us is that if we want to succeed in Torah study, we want to innovate in Torah study, the best way to do so is by being careful in mitzvah observance. In fact, there was a, there was a chassid. His name was Reb Hillel Paracher. He lived uh, about 200 years ago, give or take, a little less. 180, 170 years ago. Uh, he was a chassid of the second Chabad Rebbe, the third, um, I believe it was a lot. Anyway, he, he was one of the big chassidim. Um, in fact, he was, he was a chassid on such a level that he himself also taught uh, chassidic teachings. And he was also well known for being extremely meticulous in Jewish law, like to the extreme. To the point that in chassidic uh, circles, when someone is very, very extreme, with you know, keeping the law, you know, people would say, oh, he's trying to be like Reb Hillel, you know, he's a Reb Hillel pirate ship. Reb Hillel said the reason why he is so careful with, uh, with mitzvah observance to the, to the greatest extreme is in order that he should be able to understand Hasidus better. In order that he should be able to have a true comprehension of Hasidic thought, of Torah. In other words, uh, this is just a side point, but, but it, it to understand Torah properly, mitzvah observance is the best way to go about it. Of course, you have to learn. You have to delve into it. But the more we are careful with our mitzvah observance, the greater 
we will be, the, the, the greater um, divine help we will have in our Torah study. We're going to understand things better. We're going to understand things quicker and understand them deeper. And here we have a story of Avimi who was honoring his father and doing so to the extreme. During that time, a very profound inspiration came to him. So let's talk a little bit more about this extreme love that was expressed for the Jewish people, specifically when the temple was destroyed. Which brings us to uh, an interesting conversation about the sheribs, the kruvim, uh, the most important uh, piece of furniture in the holy temple. The holiest piece of furniture, I guess you can say, was the holy ark. When God gave the Jewish people the Ten Commandments, and then he gave them two tablets, and in these, on these two tablets, you had the Ten Commandments engraved. So God commanded Moses that he should fashion a special ark, uh, which was basically three boxes. There was a wooden box that was placed into a larger golden box, and then a smaller golden box was placed inside that wooden box. And inside that inner golden box, they placed the two tablets. It was covered with a golden sheet of, uh, a sheet of gold. And on top of that, there were these two sherebs, two kruvim, essentially two angelic figures um, that had like two faces. And they had wings, and these sherebs faced each other. Uh, this orim, this uh, holy ark, stood in the Holy of Holies. From the time that it was fashioned until the middle of the first temple era, it went through many different places and different, you know, there's a lot of stories about this uh, holy ark. Um, but essentially, it ended up in the Holy Temple. That was its rightful place in the Holy of Holies. And um, in addition to this ark, uh, you'll see soon why I'm saying this. But okay, so we have these two sheriffs that are facing each other. Um, there's actually two contradictory verses. One verse states that they were facing each other. Another verse states that they were actually facing the house. In other words, they're facing against each other. Uh, so we'll see soon how, how these two uh, things match up. But if you'll remember, many months ago, um, we, we, we discussed in one of our classes the fact that during the first temple era, or when King Solomon was building the holy temple, he knew that it would ultimately be destroyed. And so he, he dug tunnels under the, under the, the temple mount, um, and he dug the, basically the secretive tunnel to a certain space where that's where they would hold the Holy Ark, in case enemies were coming, and this is where they would keep it in hiding. Um, and it was during the first temple era, one of the kings basically realized that the situation was deteriorating, and he decided that now would be the right time to actually move the Ark from the Holy of Holies and put it into its hiding spot. And that's what they did. And that's why, by the second Holy Temple, there was never an Ark in the Holy of Holies, although the Holy of Holies still had its designated holiness, um, it was a place that no one would walk in unless it was the Kohen Gadol on the holiest day of the year on Yom Kippur with a very specific type of service. Anyway, so, but in addition to this, uh, to this ark, which had the two sheribs, King Solomon fashioned two large sheribs that actually towered over this holy ark. They were not pure gold. Uh, they were made of wood and they were plated with gold. Uh, in fact, there was a prohibition of making a second set of sheribs out of gold. So he made it out of wood and he plated it with gold. And in the second temple era, the walls, the walls of the Holy of Holies were also, they, they had like a painting of these two sheriffs. Now, here is something very miraculous 
that happened with these sherubs. The sherubs on the on the ark, the sherubs on the wall. It, it's actually a very detailed conversation with a lot of different uh, a lot of different um, opinions back and forth. But we'll present it here in a very simple way, because because the story that we're going to say, the teaching. Uh, communicates a very important point about the destruction of the temple. So page 11, source 9. How did they stand? Rabbi Yochanan and Rabbi Lazar, one says they faced each other, and one says they were back-to-back facing the walls of the sanctuary. But according to the one who says they faced each other, isn't it written that the faces were towards the house? Because you, have two different, uh, you have two different verses, and you have two different opinions of exactly how they faced each other. So the Talmud says, this is not difficult. Here it speaks of when the Jewish people were doing the will of God. And there it speaks of when the Jewish people were not doing the will of God. So here's something fascinating. These two sheriffs that were facing each other, that were touching each other, they remained in that position so long as God was happy with the Jewish people, so long as the Jewish people were deserving of such a clear expression of God's love. But when they were not deserving of this expression of love, when they were violating God's will, that's when they faced back to back. They faced the wall. So they, they basically turned around. This could be said about the sheriffs that were on top of the ark. This could be said about, about the tall sheriffs that were there, about the sheriffs that were on the wall. The reason I say this is because this is basically what's going to explain the next story. So the Talmud attracted Yuma says the following. When the Jewish people would make pilgrimage for the festivals, the curtains will be rolled up for them, and they would be shown the sherubs which were intertwined with each other. So all the Jewish people are standing in the temple, and the priests would open up the curtains to the Holy of Holies. People would not walk in there, but they would open it up in order that they could see the sherubs, and they would see that they're intertwined, that they're touching each other. They would be told, see how you are beloved before God, like the love of a male and female. The verse says that the sheriffs were like Kimar Ish Viloyas. What does that mean? Rabbi Barav Shila said, like a man intertwined with his mate. Reish Lakish said, so, they, so when the Jewish people were there for the pilgrimage, they saw that they were intertwined with each other. Reish Lakish said, when the Gentiles entered the sanctuary, they saw the sheriffs intertwined with one another. They took them out to the market and said, These Jews, whose blessing is a blessing, and those and whose curse is a curse. Should they be occupied with such matters? To a Gentile, when they looked at this, what, what, what did it look like? I don't know, something you find on page six, right? Yuck, look what these Jewish people are serving. This is their holiest room. This is, the, this is the image that they have in their room. This is what the image they have in their holy of holies, that only the Kohen Goda goes into there once a year. And um, they immediately destroyed them, as it is stated, all who honored her debased her, because they have seen her nakedness. So in other words, when the Gentiles walked in at the destruction of the temple, they see that the sherubs are intertwined, and that was a cause for greater debasement of the Jewish people. But here's the question, based on the rule, that when the Jewish people were doing the will of God, so the, the, the sherubs were intertwined with each other to represent the love between God and the Jewish people. And when they were violating God's will, they were back to back. When was the quintessential moment when the Jewish people were violating God's will? When did we reach rock bottom? When the temple was destroyed. When the heathens walked into the sanctuary. At that very moment, the sheriffs are facing each other. They're intertwined with each other. What's going on? How does that make any sense? 
But here's exactly the point. Specifically, when God is pushed against the wall, so to speak, we've reached our bottom, and something needs to go down. Something needs to happen. What does God do? God destroys the building and not the people. Is there a greater expression of love than that? So you're right. The Jewish people are not doing God's will. They're perhaps not deserving of God's love on such a, on such a level. But at their core, the covenant between God and the Jewish people is eternal, is unshakable. And therefore, specifically when we reach rock bottom, and perhaps moments earlier the shadows were back to back because of our behavior, but at the moment that God is destroying the building, this is the greatest expression of God's love for the Jewish people. Right, continuing in the Rebbe's words, we find a similar expression in the Talmud. When the Gentiles entered the sanctuary, they saw the sheribs intertwined with one another. At the time of the destruction, the sheribs were intertwined with each other, which is an indication of God's unmitigated closeness and love for the Jewish people, where we are one entity. God doesn't have a choice. He can't get rid of us. You know why? Because he intertwined himself with us. He made us part and parcel of each other. In fact, when did this happen? This all dates back to the covenant of the parts. Let's go back all the way to Abraham. Avram Avinu, our forefather Abraham, was the first Jew in, in, the, in the face of so much challenge. The entire world was, 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 was serving idols. Everyone was serving idols. And when Abraham finally discovered what makes sense, he discovered God, he started to preach this to others, he was thrown into fire and he was harassed and everything. Right? Finally, he makes it to the land of Israel, and he has a vision. And God is making a covenant with him. And God says, you are going to be mine forever and ever. But you should know that you will go into exile. Why are we talking about exile at a time of such great love? And the answer is, Abraham didn't need a covenant. For God to love Abraham, he just has to look at Abraham and say, oh my gosh, this guy is so wonderful. I love him. Right? When people are behaving, you don't need to have a covenant for love to be expressed. Love is expressed because it's great behavior. You know when you need a covenant? When things are on the rocks. When things aren't working out. And the fact that you don't just storm out of the house and say goodbye and good luck is because you're stuck. You're stuck to each other. That's the covenant. So why did God tell Abraham that there's going to be an exile? What he was telling Abraham was like this. Times will be tough, but I'm making a covenant with you. I love you. I will love your descendants no matter what. And even when they are going to descend, they're going to reach rock bottom to the point that I, I'm going to have to take away much of their privileges. You should know that my covenant is going to remain unchanged. And my covenant is going to be there to save them. So when we observe Tishabah, and we're mourning the destruction of the temple. As we get closer to the end of the day, in other words, as we get closer to the actual destruction, things are getting better. Because the moment of destruction is, is a symbol of God's love for us. As we get to rock bottom, that's actually when things are really getting better. And therefore, it's appropriate that after midday, as we get closer to when the actual fire started, we stand up from the floor. Specifically then, we should recite Nachim. We should recite that prayer, which speaks about the consolation of the Jewish people. And in fact, um, 
This, this actually is connected to another interesting point about Tisha B'Av. We mentioned, I believe it was last week or perhaps uh, several weeks earlier, that there is, a, there is a story in the Medrash which goes as follows. There was a Jew who was plowing his field. And so the, the cow was hitched to the plow and he was you know, plowing his field and an Arab walked by and the cow went moo. So the Arab tells the Jew, he says, um, stop plowing your field. Your temple was just destroyed. Okay, so the Jew tore his clothing and he was crying. And then the cow went moo again. So the Arab said, the Messiah was just born. The Redeemer of the Jewish people was just born. In other words, the tradition is, the tradition is that on Tisha B'Av, on the ninth day of Av, the day of the destruction, specifically towards Mincha, towards the afternoon, that's when Mashiach is born. In fact, they found a letter that the Rebbe wrote in, in the 1930s, and it was dated the 9th of Av. What's the 9th of Av? The birthday of Mashiach. And, and, the reason, and, and that's one of the reasons why we say Nachim. Um, one of the names of Mashiach is Menachim, which means the comforter. The reason why we say Nachim specifically in the afternoon of, of, of Tisha B'Av is because that's the time when Mashiach is born, when the Redeemer is born specifically in the destruction, that's when the beginning of redemption is revealed. How is that expressed? In many ways. Number one, the fact that God destroyed the building and not the people, which means there's a reason for these people to stick around. They have a future. They're not done. It's not the end of a beautiful empire. It's not the end of, 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 this, of, of, of some great society. No, no, no. It's the beginning of something even greater. Specifically then, the Shariahs were facing each other because the destruction of the temple was the greatest expression of God's love for us. And specifically then, Mashiach is born. In other words, the, the, the destruction of Tisha B'Av is the, is the announcement that there's something greater to come. And, and uh, there's another interesting point that the Rebbe says in a different place, which I think is very pertinent, and, and it gives us an explanation for the concept of exile. The Rebbe gives the following uh, analysis. He says, if you look at the exile in Egypt, with this I'll, I'll conclude, if you look at the exile in Egypt, something very interesting happened. At the very beginning of exile, it was 210 years in total, but that started from when Jacob came down to Egypt with his family. When Jacob came down with his family, it wasn't really exile. In fact, they were VIPs. They were given the best place in the land. They were given all the food that they wanted, free of charge. Joseph was the king. And this continued for over 100 years. For about 120 years, the Jewish people were VIPs in the land. They only became slaves 86 years before the Exodus. And the slavery started to get worse. It, it, it progressed in a worse, worse and worse manner until Moses arrived. And he comes to Pharaoh and he says, let my people go. And only then Pharaoh said, not only are they going to remain slaves, I'm not even going to provide them the tools and, and, and the... the, the, the the, how do you call it, the straw that they need in order to make the bricks. In other words, as it got closer to redemption, the, the, the exile became worse and worse and worse. If exile is a punishment for sins, it would make sense that at the very beginning, when we have a big pack of sins to deal with, it should be the worst. And as we uh, you know, cleanse ourselves of sins, so things should get better and better and better. But here we see just the opposite. At the beginning, it was pretty cool. And as we get further and further, it gets worse and worse. Talk about the current exile. After the destruction of the second holy temple, all right, things were bad, but let's talk about in a spiritual sense. In a spiritual sense, for many, many centuries, 
you had great spiritual giants then. I mean, the Mishnah was, was, was authored 200 years after the destruction. The Talmud, 450 years later. As you progress throughout exile, you see an interesting pattern. At the very beginning of exile, you had these great spiritual saints, spirit, spiritual giants, who essentially replaced the temple. Now, what was the temple? The temple was a spiritual experience. And here you had so many, a dime a dozen, you had so many spiritual great people. As the generations continue, as exile gets longer and longer, spiritual revelation starts to dwindle and dwindle and dwindle even more until we get to pretty much here and life is pretty blah, if you ask me, right? So the question is, wouldn't it make sense if these 1900 years of exile are meant to be an atonement for sins, a punishment for sins, you can imagine that at the very beginning, there was this big, large pack of sins that we had to deal with. So that should be rock bottom. That should be the worst. And as we get closer and closer to Mashiach, you know, things should get better. But no, that's not what exile is all about. Exile is about a process. There's a specific process. When you want to get to revelation, you need to have a process of, of, um, of concealment. And that concealment gets progressively more concealed and more concealed and more intense as you get closer to the revelation. And so therefore on Tisha B'Av, when we commemorate the beginning of the concealment, the beginning of exile, the destruction of the temple, it's important to realize that that was not the end of an era. It was not the end of a great society, the end of an empire. It was the beginning of a process in which the ultimate goal and purpose of the process is to have even greater revelation, a greater holy temple. The third holy temple is going to be greater than the previous two. The building is going to be more beautiful. The building is going to be more eternal. And may God help us that as we get closer and closer to Tisha B'Av, we shouldn't even get to there. Right today, Mashiach should come. We build the Holy Temple of this Tisha B'Av. We're going to celebrate with a great party, with a lot of singing and dancing. 1900 years ago, they sang and danced when they saw that the temple was burning. And then they said, Am Yisrael Chai, because they knew that only the building will burn and the Jewish people will remain. And we pray to God that this year, we will have the rebuilt temple and we will sing Am Yisrael Chai, knowing that we survived the exile, we made it out of the exile stronger than before, and may it happen today. Thank you all for joining. Uh, any questions? It's you for you tried to make, you made it positive, you made it positive, but it's not very pleasant. No, it's a bitter pill to swallow. Right? Yes. When the doctor when the doctor gives you a bitter pill, you swallow it. Right? Let's put it this way: the closer we get to Mashiach, the more we the more we're able to tap into the fact that Tisha B'av is the birthday of Mashiach. That's the idea. That's it. And and Rabbi Greenberg gave the the schedule for everything coming up this week. And of course, I remember nothing, and I'm sure it'll be published. <laughs> Saturday night, 9.30 p.m. will be Tisha B'Av services. No, 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 no. I'm sure. It's okay. It'll be, it'll be published, I'm sure. You got it. <laughs>